Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 27 of the Essential X Lapsed, where uh, I know I mentioned last time out that uh, this episode might be a little delayed due to some uh, very invasive dental work I had done just yesterday, but uh, here I sit, feeling no pain. Uh, my mouth does feel a little strange, so if I do slur a few words, or a few more than usual, uh, I do apologize. Uh, it's all a uh, work in progress here. I've got a couple more uh, sessions ahead of me, and uh, hopefully before long everything will be uh, just where we need it to be. Uh, also, there may be a little bit of a ambient noise in the background today. There's a lot of construction going on across the street from my house, and it's also storming, or about to storm, which... Uh, here we are in uh, the middle of August, and we're on a streak of under 100 degree weather here in in a you know a Phoenix suburb that I live in, and I think that uh, for all my fellow Phoenician friends here who uh, are enjoying this lull in the temperatures, all I have to say is you're welcome because uh, once again this is the first summer that my family has a swimming pool, so uh, of course it's going to be unseasonably cool, but. With all that hoo-ha out of the way, let's get into today's comic book, which uh, introduces us to our brand new scripter. Now, this is X-Men number 20. Had a May 1966 cover date. The story is called I, Lucifer... And uh, <laughs> let's talk credits here for a second here. Usually we start with, like, you know, story by or write, written by. Well, not in 1966 we didn't. Uh, we start with edited by Stan Lee. <clears throat> Script, Roy Thomas Pencils, Werner Roth as Jay Gavin Inks, Dick Ayers Letters, Artie Simic Colors are the Blue and Gold Brigade And our cover price is 12 cents Now let's start with our cover here Which is, uh, well, it's pretty busy It's uh, a little reminiscent of X-Men number 9 Where we had, like, the uh, top portion of the cover Had the X-Men fighting the Avengers And then the bottom half had Xavier fighting Lucifer Well, here on top, the X-Men are fighting... Well, we'll get there. Um, down below, it's uh, Lucifer and Xavier again. So, let's open her up. We open with a pair of X-Men imposters robbing a bank. Now, it's actually uh, Eunice the Untouchable and Blob in Ursat's X-Men costumes. And hey, uh, you remember that one letter hack a few episodes ago who complained that the X-Men's costumes are a little too loose? Beasts in particular? You remember that guy and how we kind of made fun of him? Well, I'm starting to think maybe that dude was right, because the costuming all throughout this issue looks a little bit off. Starting right here with the Blobs gear, um, total potato sack. Total potato sack, and it'll, uh, it'll only get worse. Anyway, Eunice brandishes a baseball bat and threatens the overly crowded bank with it, so uh, I guess it must be the first of the month or something, because there's a lot of fools in here. Now, Blob insists that the bank manager open the vault, but, alas, it's on a time lock and cannot be open until 10 a.m. Well, that's not near quick enough for our big boy, and so he just tears the vault door off the wall, which, of course, begs the question why he didn't just do that in the first place. Anyway, they nab a big old cartoon bag of cash, complete with a you know giant dollar sign on it, and by now the police have arrived, and uh, they open fire. On this crowded bank scene, which, you know, that's pretty dumb. You know, especially considering that Eunice has a force field and all the bullets ricochet off of it all over the place, probably killing many, many people. And I mean, I figure after you unload like one gun into Eunice and see like, uh-oh, you know, the bullets don't penetrate and actually they 
they bounce all over the place and, and kill people, maybe you stop shooting at that point. But no. And also, I mean, the blob is used to taking cannonballs to the tum, so puny bullets don't even make a dent, and they just kind of fall off of him. So Blob walks over to one of the officers and just, you know, calmly and casually takes the gun out of his hand and crushes it. Then Eunice pops his pelvis in their direction, which knocks them all down. It's uh, pretty academic from here. Blob and Eunice casually walk back to their car and drive off with all the loot. Meanwhile, back at the mansion, Cyclops has once again decided to uh, quit the team. And so he packs his belongings and leaves a brief farewell note. Now he claims that he won't be back until he can be ridded of the menace of his cursed eye beams. Which, I mean, without him, what use would he be to the team anyway? Oh, and also, he still has the hot pants for Gene, but dares not do anything about it until his eyes are fixed. Elsewhere in the mansion, the rest of the ex-kids are kind of lounging in the living room. Uh, Warren and Jean are reaching for the same book, but uh, not in a romantic sort of way. Hank is studying. Studying what, exactly? Who knows? I mean, they graduated. Uh, I guess this is just independent study. And Bobby is watching some television. When suddenly, a news report interrupts Howdy Doody, or whatever it was that he's watching. Uh, The reporter reports that the X-Men have robbed a bank. Now, Hank suggests that they make haste and inform the professor, but Charles, who is in the midst of building an all-new, all-different Cerebro, already knows, uh, because he knows everything, you see. Uh, Also, uh, Stan offers us an editor's note, which tells us that Cerebro has been down since issue 18, after Magneto done melted it. But in issue 19, Xavier mentioned that Cerebro didn't pick up on the menace of the Mimic, and was quite annoyed when Hank mentioned that Cerebro might have made a mistake. Oh well. Um, In any event, the all-new Cerebro pulls up the image of these new bank-robbing X-Men, and, uh, well, it's pretty clear that it's the Blob and Eunice the Untouchable. Now, Hank is frothing mad that Eunice is back to the evil antics, as he promised to go on the straight and narrow after he zapped and re-zapped him back in issue number 8. Now, Hank also mentions that they still have that ray gun that he used on Eunice back then. So, hey, it does get mentioned again, uh, and already the era of the fan-turned-pro is starting to bear fruit for us, isn't it? So, Xavier warns that the Beast's ray gun might just be obsolete at this point, which uh, seems to me to be a little bit catty, so he's definitely still stinging from Beast's second-guessing the melted Cerebro last issue. Now, at this point, Bobby runs in with the news that Cyclops has quit the team. Xavier's not surprised, I mean, considering he knows everything, He tells the gang that they can't worry about Scott right now, and then demands silence while he massages his temples to try to figure out who might be behind the Blob and Eunice's antics. Because clearly, Eunice and Dukes are far too stupid to figure anything out on their own. And as Xavier rubs his temples, many names go through his mind. The Vanisher. Juggernaut, who I thought was dead. Magneto, who, I mean, the stranger is still chasing him all over the place. Mastermind, uh, who is... I thought was still a statue somewhere in, somewhere in the mansion. Uh, the Sentinels. <laughs> yes, it was the Sentinels behind it, those robots. Uh, and also Submariner, because why not? It's unsurprisingly none of the above. Now, whoever it is, however, is, uh, well, they're using a mental screen in order to keep the prof out of their head. Now, Xavier decides that their best course of action is for him to build a mechanical memory inducer, which will somehow bust through the baddie's mental defenses. Why not just use the Mento Helmet? It's already there, right? 
Oh, well. Now, Jean will remain with him to work on it, but all she can do is think about Scott and fret over whether or not she'll ever see him again. Now, the rest of the fellas, they're going to go track down and confront Eunice and the Blob, and Beast, he's even going to bring that ray gun that he used back in issue 8. From here, we shift scenes to a top-secret laboratory where uh, we meet our big bad, and, uh, well, it's Lucifer. <laughs> I don't think that's too much of a sock rocker, considering the cover and the name of the issue, right? It's gonna be Lucifer. Anyway, we learn here that Eunice and the Blob are unwittingly doing his bidding. They're making it seem as though the X-Men are to be <clears throat> feared and hated, despite the fact that they are already feared and hated. Oh, well. Uh, anybody uh, want to know how Blob and Eunice first met? Because uh, we're about to head into flashback land regardless, so I suppose it really doesn't matter. Now you see, Eunice was doing his uh, pro-wrestling gimmick. You know, doing that thing where he's uh, challenging people. So he, there's a big banner up saying, if you can last in the ring with him for three minutes, you get a hundred bucks. Well, in the crowd, we got the Blob and his manager, and they decide to take on the challenge. I mean, they could use a hundred bucks. That's like seven million dollars in today's money. And so we get several panels of mutant-on-mutant mutant action, during which our baddies realize that they've got a fair amount in common. And so they decide to head out to a romantic candlelit dinner, and they decide, via Luciferian influence, that they'll put on some X-Men costumes and rob banks. Because, I mean, that's just academic. Back to the present. Blob and Eunice are at it again. They're robbing an armored car this time. And it just so happens that civilian Scott Summers is there to see it happen. Now he's there, and he's conflicted. He hems and haws a bit, claiming that, uh, you know, this ain't his problem anymore. Until a bunch of looky-loos start disparaging the good names of the X-Men, at which point he decides to change into costume and confront the bad guys. Now, quick-thinking Eunice acts like Cyclops is their old buddy, old pal, and Blob asks him for a hand in lifting the loot. Cyclops zaps the money bag, and Eunice, once again, thinks on his feet and accuses Cyclops of just being jealous that he wasn't chosen to lead this particular heist. Our boy then zaps a light pole, which... I mean, vandalism is a great way to get the public on your side, right? You know, endangering people, making the town look really, really crappy. It's a good way to, uh, to win people over. Anyway, Eunice and Blob play this up as though it's an act by Slim to confuse the rubes. And so, those same rubes decide to mob up and chase Cyclops away. Now, Lucifer is watching this all play out, and, uh, well, he's a little disappointed because it's only one legit X-Man here, or I guess former X-Man, that bit the bait. You see, he needs all of them to show up to enact whatever the hell his plan is. Then, just like that, Angel, Beast, and Iceman show up. Now, you remember a few minutes ago when uh, we talked about the potato sack costumes? Well, it's here where it really begins to offend the eyes here. We've got the Beast, right? But by looking at him here, you would think it was the Blob in his X-Men costume. Um, the only way we know that it's Hank is that A, he's not chomping on a stogie, and B, he's carrying that ray gun from X-Men number 8. That's the only way we know it's Beast. Well, he proceeds to blast Eunice with it, and, just as the professor said, it don't work no more. Turns out that Lucifer did something that made it so Eunice would be immune to the ray's effects. Uh, we probably shouldn't think about it too hard because it really... I, I don't have a... I can't no-prize my way out of this. And so, it's time for a fight. Not only do the X-Men fight the evil mutant X-Imposters, but, uh, well, they've also got to deal with the looky-loos and the cops. 
Now, Beast gets clobbered over the head by an old woman's umbrella, and an officer opens fire at Warren as he flies overhead. It, it's quite the raucous scene here. It's almost as though Blob and Eunice are, are just, you know, just there. You know, they're not really dealing with anything. Just then, Cyclops returns and blasts the ground beneath Eunice and Blob's feet. And this takes us into Dig Dug mode, you know, like the cross section where we can see everything underneath. And we can see that the baddies fell plumb down into the subway below. And as luck would have it, they landed right on a passing-by train, and they're whisked away to God knows where. And this will be the last we see of them today. The ex-boys then head back to reconnoiter with the prof, and all the way, Cyclops only wants to know what Gene's up to. Back to Lucifer. Now, he's annoyed that the one member of the X-Men he's actually after hasn't shown his face yet. He then looks to the ceiling of his lab to reveal that his mento wave receiver has indicated that Professor X has managed to penetrate his mental screen. And so, from the southwestern mesa that his lab is hidden under, he raises a goofy-looking and uncircumcised cannon. Um, now, this blasts all the way across the continent, and with pinpoint precision, well, it, uh levels the professor in his dome, rendering him completely paralyzed. So he can't move his head, he can't think really well, he's just kind of stuck within himself. Now Jean sees him seize up, and she freaks out, so she uh, gets up close, listens to his chest to make sure that the professor's heart is still beating, which I'm sure gives Charlie quite the thrill. Now, he psychically advises her to use his mental wave amplifier so that they can telepathically communicate. He's, you know, he's, he's like at a, at a whisper, a telepathic whisper here, so she needs this extra device in order to amp up the sound here. Now, it's here that the professor decides it's time to inform Gene that Lucifer is their big bad. And also, while they have a few minutes, he decides that he's going to share the secret origin of his first meeting with Lucifer and also how he lost the use of his legs. So... Back into flashback land we go. We go back to Xavier's journey across Tibet, where he became fascinated with a mysterious walled city. Now, he attempts to enter this walled city, but the guards inform him that outsiders are forbidden. So, Xavier mentally coaxes them to gain access. But, while he does so, he notes that their minds are currently being dominated by yet another. Hmm. Now, once inside, the ruler of this walled city... Lucifer, immediately takes notice, and he decides to monitor all of this outsider's movements within the city. Xavier chats up many of the locals, who seem far friendlier than you might imagine a walled-in society to be. Charles asks for an audience with the leader of the place, but is told that would be impossible. You see, not even the walled-in citizens are allowed to lay eyes on him. Xavier is later escorted to the ruler's castle and has a telepathic look inside revealing that this guy's got all sorts of alien technology stored within. Now, this tech allows the tyrant to control the minds of several movers and shakers of the city, which keeps everyone else compliant and in line. And so, Xavier finds himself falling in with some subversives, with whom he's able to foment a little bit of a rebellion. Now, they meet up, and Xavier attempts to pitch them on a full-blown insurrection. The locals aren't quite sure. Until, during their powwow, an attempt is made on their lives. A chandelier is cut and nearly crushes a lot of them as it crashes down to the table. Now, the attempted assassin is captured by Xavier and the gang, uh, which all but seals the deal. The rebel uprising will storm the tyrant's castle and take back their city for the people. Naturally, the castle is booby-trapped to the hilt. 
So also naturally, Xavier is able to sidestep all of the traps because uh, Xavier is very, very cool. Deep inside the castle, we see Lucifer making contact with the Supreme One via a gigantic monitor. Now, the Supreme One looks a lot like Lucifer, only with a green onion helmet instead of Lucy's own purple onion helmet. Turns out that Lucifer is an alien, and he works under an even more powerful alien in the Supreme One. I guess Lucifer is like Agent One or something like that. Xavier catches this communique and confronts Lucifer. Lucifer responds by dropping a tremendous brick on Charles's back, which is how he lost the use of his legs. Lucifer then escapes through a portal or something like that. Uh, Back in the present, Xavier wraps up his story, and he claims that the Lucifer incident was one of the main reasons that he decided to found the X-Men in the first place. Let's hop back to Lucifer. He reveals to us that his mental influence has managed to take over much of the world at this point, or I guess it could potentially. And so he calls in to the Supreme One to give the thumbs up on sending in Dominus. Who or what is that? Huh, well, we'll find out next time and uh, prepare to be whelmed. Uh, Back to the school, the ex-boys return and they find Xavier in his catatonic state. Beast is immediately put to work crafting a helmet to protect the prof from Lucifer's mento cannon thingy. And so, two panels later, Xavier is fitted with a bubble helmet, which returns him to normal-ish. Now, he informs the team that they're headed to the southwest, and uh, Jean is just happy that uh, she could take the geek helmet off here. She's still wearing that amplifier deal. And uh, Scott tells her to shut up, which uh, she will pout about uh, one panel later, wondering why he was so short with her. But who knows? We wrap up with the gang packing as though they were leaving on a six-month vacation, then loading into their brand-new X-plane, which literally takes off from Charles Xavier's garage, because, uh, yeah, Charles Xavier and the X-Men have no association. Remember that. And uh, we are out of here. Next episode, for better or for worse, Dominus. So, what do we think about Roy Thomas's first issue on X-Men? Um, well, I don't know what I was expecting. I don't know if I was expecting, like, a huge tonal shift here. Um, it's been a long, long time since I've read these. I feel like most of my uh, X-Men rereads have uh, kind of petered out somewhere within the first... 10 to 15 issues, so the books we're reading right now and will be continuing to read for the next little while are uh, are wholly unfamiliar to me. I've, I've, of course, read them maybe once, maybe twice, but um, these aren't the ones that I come back to over and over again when I try to, uh, you know, rediscover some of the uh, classic X-Men stories here, which, I mean, that's no indictment on, on Roy or the stories. It's just uh, the way I do things. It's probably why, like, I've probably played through the first disc of Final Fantasy VII, like, a hundred times, and really didn't go much further than that, so it's, uh, you know, one of those things that you just do every once in a while. You start off and you're all excited, and then it kind of just wears off, and then you're uh, distracted by any number of other things here, so this is, like, the first time I'm reading this in a very, very long time, and, uh, well, it didn't feel all that different from the Stan stuff, other than the fact that it feels like Roy is um, making a real effort to include bits and pieces of continuity here. Uh, I would figure if there were a Usenet or a social media back in 1965-1966, the little X-Men corner of it would be like, Hey, anybody remember uh, Beast's ray gun that messed with Eunice's powers? 
I wonder what's going on with that. I wonder if that's still around. And uh, here we are in Roy's very first issue, mentioning something that happened, you know, 12 issues ago. It's, uh, I mean, there are a couple of different ways we can look at it, right? It's a good thing and it's a bad thing, in a way. Um, it's good in that, you know, all of us uh, very anal fans would be like, ooh, we're, we're getting a mention of this again. That's great. We're, we're not forgetting where we came from. Things will be consistent but then I suppose an argument could be made that uh, it makes the books a little bit less um, accessible to a new reader here. Where, And I mean, this is a very silly example because it's a gun. You know, it, it's just a ray gun that they basically explained everything it did. But it's kind of an indictment on the direction uh, that the comics industry will eventually get to, to the point where... Just a decade and a half later, people will be complaining that uh, books like the X-Men that turn into families of books are just impenetrable, like just so labyrinthine in its lore that uh, a new reader could never hope to, uh, to figure it all out unless they really, really put in the effort. And even if they do, um, they, they might not find that the, uh, the destination was worth the journey to get there. And again, yes, this was just a ray gun. <laughs> so uh, I'm definitely uh, thinking about this way too hard. And I've got, we, you know, we've got so much hindsight. It's easy to see that this is just like tipping the first domino in uh, the self-referential nature of, uh, of American comics going forward. The, uh, I think it's the uh, John Byrne forums where he really kind of regards the this era, uh, the fans turn pro era, as when everything started to kind of meld into the uh, the comic book world that we that we know and uh, many of us love, many of us tolerate, and some of us uh, despise. I tell you one thing, I am definitely looking forward to uh, reading some of the upcoming letters pages to see how folks uh, glom onto this. And like I said, I haven't read these things in a while, so I'm not sure if it's going to get even more like this, where Roy's just going to be peppering in bits and pieces of lore in every issue, or if this is just a, hey, you know what, I had a question about this ray gun, so, uh, hey, let's answer that question in this uh, in this issue. But we're definitely far too young in the Roy Thomas run. This is only the first 20 pages of his run, so I'm not going to say much more about it here. We'll... Uh, I'm sure we'll be talking much more about it in uh, coming episodes here. One thing I was definitely hoping for with the Roy Thomas run was that uh, maybe a little bit less emphasis on The Professor. And it doesn't look like it's going to be that way, uh, at least not at the offset. Uh, I'm pretty sure later on there will be kind of a curveball thrown at us, and we'll we'll get there when we get there. But uh, even that <laughs> will come back around to being a very... Uh, Professor X is the coolest hero sort of a scenario. What else we got here? Um, well, Scott Summers' short stint away from the X-Men. Uh, his, uh, his time away lasted about three or four pages, which, uh, I mean, that's his record at this point, right? That's the longest he's been away from the X-Men, though he's uh, threatened to leave a couple of times before. And this might just be my mangled memory here, but I think this is going to happen a few more times between uh, between now and uh, the end of the original 66 issues. I think he's going to threaten to leave or leave or step away for a minute or threaten to step away for a minute. I, I think this is just going to be a thing, and I, I could be completely wrong, but... Uh, Whenever I think back to Cyclops' time during the original 66 issues, it's always him quitting. <laughs> it's always him lamenting the fact that he has the curse of the optic blast and uh, threatening to quit and finally tracking down a doctor who can help him control his powers or just do away with them, you know, completely. 
We've got the return of some bad guys here Blob and Eunice uh, Can't say that I was uh, missing them all that much <laughs> So, uh, I mean, they're as good as any I don't really remember why Lucifer needed them to do what he did I also don't know why he wanted to uh, to get the X-Men I, I really don't remember any of that It doesn't seem like it's it doesn't seem like it was well thought out Because I don't know that it'll actually matter at the end of the day But uh, I suppose we'll get there when we get there um, Overall, I mean, this is an important issue As it's the first Roy Thomas issue uh, We still have Stan getting top billing Which is, you know, understandable Since Stan is the recognizable name to the fan of the day And they might uh, they might not feel comfortable Reading something without Stan's name in the uh, front and center So... We'll accept that, I suppose um, As for uh, Werner Roth's work here uh, Nothing stood out to me as being particularly good or bad So uh, that's that's a good thing, I think It was just kind of there I was able to enjoy it for what it was And nothing really stood out as being like Ugh, You know, that's a, that's a weird face So uh, that's a win That's a win But uh, I think that's all I have to say about it uh, Mostly because uh, my mouth is getting very, very tired So um, I'm just going to reel this portion of the program in So we can hop into the back matter And we will start with the letters page Now we're going to start with Peter in Ontario Now he claims that he did not heed Stan's advice On the cover of X-Men number 17 Now if you remember There was a little blurb on that cover that said Do not reveal the ending to anyone Well... Pete, he told a little old lady what the reveal was, and of course that reveal was the return of Magneto. And he says no longer did he say this than he was arrested and beaten. Now, he only got out of jail by promising to buy the officers the next issue of X-Men. So, uh, I guess that tells you that bribery will get you everywhere in Canada. Next up, we got Jerry in Indiana. Now, Jerry feels that the art has improved since the X-Men went monthly, which is to say since Jack Kirby stopped drawing it. Now, he loved issue 16, considers Cyclops his favorite, and he says that he loves the, quote, trinket stuff. Trinket stuff. Now, Stan replies by asking other readers if they have the foggiest friggin' idea what trinket stuff Jerry's going on about. So, maybe in the upcoming issues we'll find out what the trinket stuff is. Hmm. If, if anybody knows, uh, as soon as I finish designing the fake-ass no-prize, I'll, I'll send you one. Uh, next, Dick in California. Now, he likes the new corner box that appeared on X-Men number 17's cover. He refers to Magneto as Lodestone Lips, which uh, makes me think of Magneto's mouth hanging around Skywise's neck over an elf quest. He's looking forward to seeing Iceman save the day. Which, well, about that, uh... Well, Dick, uh, how would you like uh, Xavier saving the day again instead? Because uh, that's what's gonna happen. He says that he'd love to be a comics creator one day, and he says that Marvel are the most casual comics out there. They can speak to the adult reader honestly and not talk down to them. To which Stan says, thank you. Guy in California. And hey, we've already heard from Guy in California. He uh, basically has the same letter he wrote last time, wherein he spends several paragraphs to explain why his only thought about the X-Men is, Wow! He says the Magneto reveal at the end of X-Men number 17 was the single biggest thrill he'd ever received from a comic book. And, well, in fairness, we are several years away from Cherry Pop-Tart, so uh, what are you going to do? He says the X-Men are the best because they have the best villains. Dean in Georgia. Now, he suggests that X-Men is the best Marvel comic since Amazing Adult Fantasy. He's happy Magneto's back, but doesn't want to see him in every single issue. He wants him back like every fifth or so issue. He thinks that'd be grand. 
and he wants to see him fight the Avengers as well. Now, while he's happy Magneto's back, he does not want to ever see the Toad again because he, uh, he acts like a pig. Now, he wants more of the Scott and Jean romance, and he wants Angel to find a girlfriend that isn't Jean. Now, he thought that the Angel pinup in issue number 17 was the best pinup he'd ever seen, which tells me it was probably the only pinup that Dean and Georgia has ever seen because it was not great. Next up, FR in England. Now, he thought American comics were drivel until sampling X-Men and Sergeant Fury, and he said that they were quite entertaining. Now, Stan writes back to thank him for finding their drivel to be entertaining. So, really good Stan answer. Nick in New York. Now, he loves that Magneto's back, though he mentions that it wasn't too much of a surprise with all that lead-up. And he wonders why Iceman didn't revert to his non-iced form while unconscious. Now, Stan comments about Iceman by stating that he's going to try to wriggle out of answering that question for now. So I'm guessing that that's a definite no-prize bait. Next up, Frank in Brooklyn. He joined the MMMS, and he has regular dinners with Irving Forbush. But, well, he's got some complaints about Marvel here. He thinks the Marvel printing process sucks. He wants Marvel to stop playing musical chairs with its art teams. And he wants Stan to grow a pair and name some names here. He's tired of the brand Ech talk, and he wants him to actually say DC or National. He wants, he wants names named. And uh, he wonders how the Sentinel TV studio stayed down after Xavier and the police removed the giant crystal off that building. Now, that's a good question, and it was one that I didn't feel like asking myself when we discussed that issue. Now, Stan says that that Sentinel was under the command to collect Trask, which at that point had already been done. Pretty good answer, right? Well, you know, if you think about it, uh, that Sentinel was fighting the X-Men after Trask was captured, so uh, I guess whatever. Now, Stan says that he uses brand Ech to name all of their competitors, since there are more competitors than one out there. So he doesn't name names because he hates all of them and thinks they're all crap. So good enough answer. Next, Doug in Jersey. He loved issue 17. And he wants Marvel Collector's Item Classics to continue and maybe have themed issues. Like maybe one month it's all Fantastic Four stories, the next month all X-Men, the next all Thor, and uh, on and on and on. Stan thinks that might be a good idea. Gary in Illinois. He, oh boy. He wants to see the Marvel superheroes as a baseball team. And uh, yes, he went on to uh, list all of the positions that he would give them. And, uh... Let's do it. Let's do it. First base, Mr. Fantastic. Second base is Daredevil. Third base is the Human Torch. Shortstop is Spider-Man. Right field is Hulk. Left field is Iron Man. Center field is Angel. The pitcher will be Thor. The catcher will be The Thing. Their manager is Professor X, and their water boy is Namor. They've also got some cheerleaders, because we do have girls, right? Uh, We have Sue Storm, Marvel Girl, and uh, Aunt May. You want to see Aunt May in a flouncy skirt? Yeah, me either. Uh, Now, Stan writes back to say that Irv Forbush is crying because he had his heart set on being the Bat Boy. Now, I mean, if anybody out there has a vast collection of Marvel action figures and, like, some sort of a uh, grassy setting you could put them on, I I would love for you to recreate this team for us here. That'd uh, That'd be fantastic. But that will do it for the mail. Uh, Let's hop into the bullpen page here. And we will start with the How About That department. Now, how about this? People can't get enough of Marvel's collector's item classics. 
And so, Stan's going to launch Marvel Tales as a bi-monthly to alternate with it in the same vein. So one month you'll get the collector's item classics, the next month you'll get Marvel Tales. So, I don't know what it costs to put out a reprint book, but uh, it's I guess it's like free money-ish, right? It's You don't got to pay a writer, or I guess you don't got to pay yourself to, to do it. Next up, news item. Radio disc jockeys love Marvel, and uh, Stan's got the receipts to prove it. By listing a whole lot of radio DJs who claim to love Marvel And uh, well, let's do it Let's see if I can stumble my way through this uh, Paul Drew from uh, WQXI Atlanta Jerry G from WKYC Cleveland Arnie Ginsberg from WMEX Boston Russ Knight from KILT Houston Steve Nicolette from KPOI Honolulu Pat O'Day from KJR Seattle Dick Purton from WKNR Detroit Johnny Rabbit from KXOK Los... I'm sorry, St. Louis. Lost Louis. Nah, it's not right at all. Joey Reynolds from KBQKWKBW. See, I'm telling you, I'm stumbling here. Buffalo. Art Roberts from WLS Chicago. Rick Shaw from WQAM Miami. And Gary Stevens from WMCA New York. So hopefully I didn't butcher that too bad here. The letters just started jumbling up in my head. Let's head to the Did You Know department. Federico Fellini popped by the bullpen for a visit on November 3rd, 1965. Now, Fellini, he released Eight and a Half a couple years prior and took an American tour of sorts. He would tour Disneyland with Walt Disney back in 1963, and then a tour of the Marvel bullpen with Stan Lee in 1965. So that's uh, pretty crazy stuff, isn't it? And uh, maybe gives Marvel a little bit more uh, legitimacy in that a famous foreign filmmaker is a uh, fan of their work, or at least showed up for a tour. Uh, strictly personal department It's a big reveal here Adam Austin is really Gene Colan Why they changed his name? Uh, they don't really say News item Spider-Man guest starred in Daredevil number 16 Under the pencils of Jazzy John Romita And the wrap-up here Now this <laughs> This is where Stan gets a little salty He mentions how some Marvel fanatics Call them out on being disrespectful Toward their competition And we did just see that in the letters page, right? So Stan is going to explain why he do that. Now you see, for years Marvel has tried to upgrade what it means to be a comic book, trying to make it like a legitimate art form. And uh, Stan goes as far as to say he doesn't hate the competition. In fact, they actually welcome competition. But, and we'll just quote Stan here, we'll let him say it. Quote, We do resent shabby, carelessly produced, badly written and drawn, consciousness, consciousless imitations of our Marvel mags, imitations which are callously lacking in quality and which are produced for the sole purpose of making a fast profit in the field which they themselves are helping to keep at the bottom of the artistic totem pole. Stan goes on to spend another several hundred words talking about how cluttered the newsstand racks are with garbage. Which, I mean, replace newsstand with... LCS shelf, and he could be talking about today. <laughs> you know, the big two and L. Let's include the indies, too. A lot of indies, they're putting out a ton of trash here. They're just trying to push each other off the racks by putting out... Uh, they're just trying to flood it. They're trying to flood it. I guess it's same as it ever was. I mean, do you want uh, seven or eight Batman books a week that all contradict one another? Sure, why not? It has the Bat logo on it. Just buy it. You're going to buy it anyway. Just do it. But I want to hear from uh, you all here about Stan's thoughts here about the competition here. And even if we relate it to uh, to the more contemporary uh, direct market, the comics market of today here. 
Now, we talked a little bit about this in uh, earlier episodes here, but uh, there's been a lot of revisionist history done on Stan over the past, you know, 20, 30 years, or probably even before that, but I've only been around for the past 30 or so uh, in the fandom. But, you know, people like to, uh, some people, not, yeah, you know, I don't want to make this a blanket statement by any means, but uh, I think they view Stan as a guy who was in the right place at the right time, a guy who never really wanted to be in comics, and uh, as such, just a. Uh, Used other people to get uh, famous And I think that's very unfair Of course, we all have our opinions here We can all talk about You know, we could put up the big pie chart here And see who created what And who who really has more of a claim to certain things here uh, Steve Ditko famously did the uh, You know, a list of things that made Spider-Man what he is And then drew the picture of Spider-Man And said, okay, well, who who created Spider-Man? You know, we we could get into the nitty-gritty of that But we won't what we do want to talk about here, or at least what I want to talk about here, is the fact that whether or not Stan wanted to be in comics, whether this was his lifelong goal or not, he is putting forth an effort to make comics more than what they were. And again, this is all just my opinion. You can uh, agree or disagree, and either way, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it as well. But here we have Stan trying to make comics more accessible and enjoyable and, uh, I guess, more palatable and more socially acceptable for people over the age of 10, right? These are the books that grow up with you, kind of. And he does mention here that some of the other companies are trying to do the same thing as Marvel. And uh, maybe they're not doing it quite as well. Maybe they're doing it a little too well in that they're uh, you know, wholesale taking uh, what Stan has, uh, has put into practice and uh, using it on their own. Now, quality, of course, is subjective here. It's uh, Nobody's going to agree on the quality of things uh, in most situations. There's always going to be someone who likes something that most people don't like. And whether that's due to an actual difference in opinion or playing devil's advocate, it really doesn't matter, right? It's just uh, quality is what quality is. And Stan feels that uh, Marvel does what Marvel does better than anyone else in the uh, market in the industry. And... Uh, takes a bit of offense to uh, lazier work being put out in a similar vein. And I mean, I think this is something that could be parlayed into any sort of uh, entertainment field, right? Uh, quality levels insofar as movies, TV, music, even, you know, stupid comics podcasts. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, when the Cosmic Treadmill was still uh, doing what it did, uh, there were a few imitators out there of the Cosmic Treadmill. It took what we did basically wholesale, um... And in our opinion, didn't do it half as well. So I can totally see uh, Stan being a bit perturbed. One of the letter hacks last time out said that someone in the Distinguished Competition used Stan's Nuff Said, which was basically all he needed to see to know that uh, they were being ripped off. And uh, yeah, I can. that's another thing I can kind of uh, sympathize with as... I've listened to some shows that uh, I've been able to actually read my script along with what they were saying because my words were coming out of their mouth. So I can totally get why uh, why this might start to get under Stan's skin. And is this little missive caddy on his behalf? Uh, maybe. Maybe. It's, it's entertaining, especially so many years removed here, to see... This sort of, uh, the genesis of this sort of playful rivalry, because I think at the end of the day, you know, comics creators, they're all friends, doesn't matter what, what company they work for, they all know each other, they're still in the same business, they're offering each other gigs, they're jumping across the street, it's, you know, it's a small industry. So it's, uh, it's funny that, uh, Stan can 
be a little spicy here And I'm sure DC will uh, lob some salvos across the street as well in their letters pages So it's funny how it's the fans that seem the most offended when it's uh, no, nobody's making fun of their work. <laughs> They're just there to put their you know their twelve cents on the uh, on the newsstand so they can pick up their newest issue. So I guess uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. People love to dig their heels in, choose their side. You know, Coke versus Pepsi, Marvel versus DC, uh, you know, PlayStation versus Xbox. It's you you invest in your side and. Uh, Make it your mission to white knight and stand up for billion dollar companies Who probably wouldn't pee on you if you were on fire So that's the way of the world, in it? But that's going to do it for the bullpen bulletins I, I do want to hear what you guys think about Stan's, uh, Stan's sassy little missive here And uh, where you fall on the, on the argument But before we get out of here, we do have the mighty Marvel checklist here we're going to start with Fantastic Four number 51, which is a story featuring The Thing. And this is a pretty famous story. It's This Man, This Monster, which actually we covered, uh, we did a deep dive on during Cosmic Treadmill episode 73, which is available in the archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com or, you know, anywhere the internet has noise. Spider-Man 37. Once upon a time, there was a robot. Okay. Avengers number 28 Now this is the return of Giant Man With a new costume and a new name Anybody want to know the name? Well, it's Goliath Uh, Daredevil number 16 Guest stars Spider-Man As we heard during the bullpen Thor number 128 Pluto faces off with Thor and Hercules, of course Of course Uh, Strange Tales 145 Features S.H.I.E.L.D. versus the Druid And Doctor Strange has a surprise up his sleeve Tales of Suspense 76, Iron Man vs. Ultimo, still, and also Captain America's first meeting with Nick Fury. And let me see if I can say this right on the fifth take here. <clears throat> Tales to Astonish number 80, Submariner vs. the Behemoth, still. I, I, I've been saying like. I've been saying like Submariner. I've been saying like Rick Moranis. I don't know what I'm saying here trying to say Submariner. Also in that issue, Hulk vs. Tyrannus and the Mole Man. Sergeant Fury number 30, Howlin' in Sunny Italy. Marvel Collector's Item Classics number 3, Stan says buy it now, it's a surefire sellout. Finally, Fantasy Masterpieces number 2, featuring more Golden Age goodness. We don't have any ads to discuss today, uh, they're mostly the same. And uh, house ads, I mean, how much can you say about a house ad? It's either going to be a cover that we all recognize or uh, one that we don't. And that's really all I'll have to say about it anyways. Oh, oh, I almost forgot. There are uh, 26 new members to the uh, Marvel Marching Society. Um, none of them stood out to me. No uh, no Dick Hurts the fourth. So it's uh, just a bunch of folks who uh, probably have some pretty nifty uh, stationery and maybe a t-shirt or two. But that'll do it for the book. Let's hop into our own mailbag here. We do have a letter from our friend Billy D talking about episode 25. He says, hey, dude, I hope all goes well at the dentist. I had some of that last year, and it's the worst. And first, yeah, thanks for checking in on me there. Um, wasn't that bad, uh, what had to be done for me. Uh, I felt like parts of my mouth <laughs> were being stretched to the point where they would never, ever get back to, like, normal size. But uh, by the time I was no longer numb, everything seemed to be uh, where it belonged, where it needed to be. Um, still feel a little bit of a mouth fatigue right now since I was... Uh, you know, had my mouth held open for several hours, but uh, no pain, you know, no real pain, no pain that's different from the usual, you know, head, neck, and mouth pain that I 
deal with every day. Uh, hopefully, when this is all said and done, I'll have far less of that. Uh, Billy continues, tell Beast to get to the back of the line. Uh, this is referring to a letter <laughs> letter that wrote in to uh, Stan saying that he wants to see the Beast spank Marvel Girl. Like, that was the whole point of his letter. I mean, I, I know we all have our fetishes, but uh, I don't know. We don't usually wear them on our sleeve like that. Now, Billy says, I'm sure Xavier would be the first in line to spank Gene, and I'm definitely the second. I love the ads you spoke of, and I hope we do more of that sooner than later. And I hope so, too. I hope that some of the ads uh, stand out like those two uh, silly ones did here. Um, it's mostly house ads, unfortunately. And we do get those pages full of, like, like those, like, it looks like want ads, kind of. It's like 50 ads, tiny, tiny ads that are just like, you know, make money today, or uh, build muscles today, or build your comic collection today. Stuff like that, so... Those aren't too terribly fun to talk about, but I'm sure sooner or later we'll get to some fun ones. But uh, thank you so much for writing in, Billy. And uh, we'll close out by presenting a fake-ass no prize. Our buddy Dave wrote in to take issue with uh, some of Stan's uh, missives in the bullpens last time. Uh, Stan claimed that down south of the border that La Mole was the Hulk. Well, uh, Dave spent some time south of the border and could tell us that La Mole is actually the thing, not the Hulk. And uh, first thing I had to do was double-check Stan's writing to make sure I didn't just read it wrong, and uh, no, I didn't. So Stan done goofed. He called the Hulk La Mole when it was supposed to be the thing that was La Mole. And so uh, I think that's worthy of a uh, fake-ass no prize. I just have to finish designing a fake-ass no-prize before I could send it out. But uh, thank you so much for letting us know uh, about Stan's Spanish snafu. But now that will finally do it for the show here. If anybody would like to write in and maybe go for a fake-ass no-prize, I think we put out some questions over the past several episodes here because, uh, well, some questions need answering, and I'm not sure we're going to get them from uh, Stan or now Rascally Roy. So... If anybody wants to write in, try to get a fake-ass no-prize, or just say hello or talk about the show, I would invite you to do so. You can find me several different ways. First, you can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. You can pop over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com for blog posts and show notes, and there's a place there you can comment as well. Uh, speaking of commenting, Facebook, we have our little group, it's 90s X-Men, or 60-something members strong, having a good time chatting up all eras of X-Men comics in there, and I hope to see you there soon. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, as well as the full X-Lapsed family of shows archives, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates noise. And that will do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so much. For joining me on this essential journey This might be the final episode for a little while Hopefully my uh, current year stuff Will arrive at some point This month uh, It's a cursed package it seems This is as cursed as Cyclops' dread optic beams Here every time it says it's going to deliver Something happens Something happens There's a delay, a truck breaks down It's uh, been a It's been touch and go all week So hopefully by the next time you hear from me, we will be talking about Original Recipe X-Labs. But no promises. It very well could be the second part of this Dominus story, for all I know. But that'll do it for today. Thank you all so much for spending some time with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya! See ya!